0: This
1: is EM Cases, EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed, practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only, and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. You know, when you've got a patient who's in shock and you've done all the right things, you've got your team working away at monitors and lines and volume resuscitation, you might be preparing for intubation, you've started a vasopressor, you expect that what you're doing will work, especially the vasopressor. What happens when your vasopressor does not work as expected? What next? Let's listen to Swami based on some educational goal done by Ruben Strayer, Critical Care Now, and Salim Rose and see what he has to say about what diagnoses to consider and address after your first
0: vasopressor has failed. In the emergency department, we see lots of different types of shock. Hemorrhagic, anaphylactic, septic. There's so many different varieties. And we spend a lot of time talking about how to identify the different causes, how to treat the different causes, and then we'd like to get them away from us, get them off to the ICU or wherever their ultimate destination is. But sometimes these patients stay with us longer, And on occasion, even when we think we know what the cause is, sometimes patients don't respond the way that we expect them to respond. And that's what I want to focus on today is the occult causes of non-response to vasopressors. The most important thing to realize in this discussion is that the cognitive response to hypotension should not be reaching for a vasopressor. The primary treatment for hypotension or malperfusion is to treat the underlying pathology. The vasopressor is basically buying us and the patient some time. When I think of occult causes, what I'm really talking about is patients who, despite substantial vasopressor doses, don't show the hemodynamic parameter improvements that we expect. Failure of response should lead to a cognitive pause and then consideration of the different reasons why the patient may not be responding. And in general, I'm doing this anytime I'm ratcheting up my vasopressor or I'm adding a second or reaching for a second vasopressor. The list of potential causes for non-responders is long, and we will include a little bit of some details in the show notes. And by no means is this comprehensive, but it's the way that I think about these patients when I see them. So first is acidosis. Now, we can make that diagnosis, obviously, with a blood gas or even a basic metabolic panel. And the treatment here is to reverse the underlying cause. A bicarb drip or pushes a bicarb is unlikely to help, and there are some situations where the pH might be so low that while you're reversing the underlying cause, you might call for CVVHD or continuous veno-venous hemodialysis. Number two on my list to consider is hypothyroidism. The diagnosis here is going to be clinical. The TSH may help us. Depends on how quick your turnaround is there. The treatment here is levothyroxine, and we do have to be comfortable with empiric treatment when we can't get that TSH back or confirm the diagnosis. Anaphylaxis is another one to consider. We should be able to get this by history, but sometimes patients present with hypotension alone and it's not as easy to make. Treatment here is gonna be epinephrine. You might consider ECMO in patients who are refractory to epinephrine. And one of the things to consider is that the patient may have come in with one form of shock and then a treatment we gave them caused anaphylaxis. I've seen this happen with sepsis where the patient gets an antibiotic, they have an anaphylactic reaction to that. And we just have to be on top of that and recognize that this could happen. Number four is adrenal insufficiency, and I think it's easy to not recognize adrenal insufficiency when it's there. This is mainly a clinical diagnosis, although if you see hyper-K and hyponatremia, that can help you in making the diagnosis. Often we get it from the history for the patient that they're on chronic steroid use, and that can push us in the right direction. Treatment here is going to be empiric hydrocortisone. Number five on my list is hypocalcemia. Another one of these unrecognized ones, especially because we don't always get ionized calcium's. But that's what we really want. You might see prolonged QT on the EKG, but that's not the way exactly to make the diagnosis. It might hint you towards hypocalcemia. And the treatment, of course, is going to be calcium salts. This is one that we see often in patients who have hemorrhagic shock, either GI bleed or trauma, are getting lots of blood products. Sometimes we forget to give that calcium. Number six on my list is occult bleeding. That occult source may be GI, and I've seen this a number of times where the GI bleed was missed until the patient had a large bloody bowel movement. And retroperitoneal hemorrhage is another place where we can often miss this, even if we've done an ultrasound or we've done a rush or fast exam looking for free fluid. In some patients, you just don't get the history of trauma, and so it's another reason why doing a rush exam, looking at the belly for free fluid or blood, is really useful. And of course, the treatment here is to transfuse the patient reverse anticoagulation, and then consider operative or IR control. The seventh thing I consider is toxicologic causes, occult causes of toxicologic poisoning, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, an overdose that you didn't hear about, tricyclic antidepressants. There's so many different toxins that can cause hypoperfusion, can cause hypotension. And you're again have to tailor that management to whatever is going on. So for beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker, it might be hyperinsulinemia, euglycemia therapy, you might have to reach for ECMO, Sodium bicarbonate for TCA overdose. And then finally on my list is to consider that the patient might have two causes of shock. They might have come in with septic shock, but they were actually hiding something else. They might have come in with hemorrhagic shock, but they also were hiding cardiogenic shock. They might have had an MI leading to their MVC. So a lot of different things to consider here. Patients can have multiple concurrent causes of shock. So look for that second cause. Ultrasound can be really helpful, especially if you have a focus protocol, something like RUSH or the EGLS protocol. And what you have to make sure that you do with these protocols is not stop when you find one thing. Just because you found that the patient has cardiac tamponade doesn't mean that they also don't have a pneumothorax, or they don't also have a AAA, or they don't also have some other cause of shock. So if you're using ultrasound, you're using a protocol, which I think we all should be doing in undifferentiated patients with shock. Don't stop when you find one thing. Make sure to complete the protocol. And if you have a patient you've been resuscitating for a while and now they are failing to respond or your first-line managements are failing, this might be a place to bring that ultrasound back out and look again because things might have changed. It is a long list of things, but again, the focus has to be that when you see a patient who isn't responding to your vasopressors the way that you expect them to, take a cognitive pause and then consider these different reasons acidosis hypothyroidism anaphylaxis adrenal insufficiency hypocalcemia occult bleeding a toxicologic cause and then of course the second cause of shock
1: so impressive how swami zeroes in on the most important occult causes of shock that creep up on you after you've done all the right things and then delivers them to us in such a clear concise organized way and of course quick Next up, we've got the best of EM docs with Britt Long. He's going to remind us of why and when to be especially careful with the ED patient who has no spleen. We
2: handle critically ill and immunosuppressed patients almost every shift. We often think about immunosuppression with chemotherapy or dialysis. But one of these patient populations that we can't miss is a splenic patients. Over 1 million people in the U.S. and Canada live without a spleen which can be due to anatomical reasons like trauma or treatment of a disease, or functional due to diseases like sickle cell disease. We're going to focus on one of the deadliest complications that can occur in a splenic patient's, opsi, or overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. These patients can become critically ill fast, with a mortality rate that can reach 70%.
3: We don't often think about the spleen very much until there's a problem. Remember that the spleen is a critical organ for fighting infections. It's involved with creating antibodies, and it makes opsonins, which help the macrophages to engulf bacteria. It also stores a ton of lymphocytes, kind of like a giant lymph node, and it filters and removes dead cells and certain types of bacteria, particularly the encapsulated ones like strep pneumoniae, H. influenzae, and Neisseria meningitis. So when a patient doesn't have a spleen, or their spleen isn't functioning, they are at significant risk of infection.
2: Most of these patients who are asplenic know about their risks of infection because they go through some pretty significant education. They are also supposed to notify healthcare providers and wear a medical alert bracelet or carry a card. They typically receive a bunch of vaccinations and are even given prophylactic antibiotics for several years after a splenectomy. If they have a fever or systemic symptoms, They are supposed to take their supply of emergency antibiotics like amoxicillin clavulanate or cefnir and then go directly to the ED.
3: All of this is to try to prevent overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. The most common infections are pneumonia, urinary tract infection, bacteremia, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and meningitis. It is most common in the first two years after a splenectomy, but there are cases of severe infection up to 20 years later.
2: Death can happen within hours of the first symptoms. Streptococcus pneumoniae is the most common microbe causing opse, even with vaccinations. Infections due to strep in asplenic patients are associated with higher rates of mortality and need for ICU admission.
3: Most patients will initially present with non-specific symptoms like fever, chills, myalgias, vomiting, and diarrhea for the first 2 days, which can make it tough to diagnose. However, after these first two days, they can quickly decompensate with hypotension, septic shock, and multi-organ failure. Some will even progress to adrenal hemorrhage, DIC, and ARDS. Making it even more difficult, patients can present with infections involving multiple organ systems, like concurrent pneumonia and urinary tract infection, as well as atypical infections like septic arthritis, spinal epidural abscess, or adenocarditis.
2: If the patient is able to provide a history, ask about vaccination status as well as why they are asplenic. If you're lucky, a history of asplenia may already be present in the chart for you and hopefully the patient is wearing their medical alert bracelet. If you're not able to get a reliable history, look for a surgical scar near where their spleen would be in their left upper quadrant. You should also suspect asplenia if you see howell jolly bodies on blood smears, which are just small nuclear remnants in RBCs that look like purple circles make sure to do a very thorough head-to-toe exam on these patients to try to identify the source, since, as Mike said, they can have very atypical sites for infection.
3: While the evaluation is important, don't let it delay your resuscitation in antibiotics. Patients with suspected sepsis should get broad-spectrum antibiotics early. While they often receive multiple antibiotics, your most important antibiotic is the beta-lactam or a similar agent, since this will target the encapsulated organisms that cause most, but not all cases of OPSI. If they remain hypotensive despite fluids and pressors, have a low threshold to begin stress dose steroids since they are at higher risk of adrenal issue.
2: The biggest takeaway is respect to spleen. Patients with functional or anatomic splenia are immunosuppressed and at high risk of infection. OPSI isn't always straightforward, but fever in these patients is a medical emergency. Treat with broad-spectrum antibiotics while you're looking for a source
1: great reminder that asplenic patients need some special considerations. Now, there have been a lot of surprises with the COVID pandemic. One thing that perhaps seems obvious, but I haven't heard too much about, is how other infectious diseases will change as a result of the COVID pandemic. Sarah Reed is now going to describe how one of the most common reasons for pediatric hospital admission is expected to change and why it's important for EM.
4: Last week at our Department of Pediatrics Grand Rounds, Dr. Amy Plint, who's my colleague in Emerge and an internationally renowned pediatric emergency medicine researcher in respiratory illness, gave us an update on bronchiolitis, which seemed a bit strange because it was just the end of May. And she did provide an overview of the state of the evidence for diagnosis and treatment. But she also gave us a warning that I think is really important for anyone who works in an Emerge that sees kids. So as you all know, RSV bronchiolitis is the most common reason for a child under one to be admitted to hospital in Canada. And we all know that this is a seasonal disorder that we see in the fall and the winter, and it's really the annual scourge of the pediatric emergency department. So we all sigh with relief when bronchiolitis or viral season is over, at which point we get a bit of breathing room during the summer before it starts over again. So it's a it's very typical. There's a very predictable pattern to peds emerge overcrowding and busyness in the wintertime that's largely driven by wheezing infants with respiratory distress. So the past winter of 2020-2021 has been unlike anything any of us have seen before in terms of the absence of RSV. At CHEO, we had two children admitted with RSV versus what normally happens where we have hundreds of babies admitted annually. And this change has been attributed to public health measures like social distancing and masks and school closures. So the question becomes for us, what will the future look like? So here's the warning that I wanted you to hear. Our PEM colleagues in Australia sent a letter to the Northern Hemisphere through the Pediatric Emergency Research Network to let us know that RSV is not gone and it has reappeared with a vengeance in their part of the world. So in February 2021, Foley and colleagues published a letter in Clinical Infectious Diseases with data from Western Australia showing that their average RSV epidemic looks like ours, so it peaks in the winter and then it eases off and then comparing to what it looks like this year, where it was very, very low levels of RSV during the weeks that where they had their public health measures in place, and then rising rapidly to really high levels during the summer. So an off-season rise when they normally would not see bronchiolitis, and much higher than usual. And the other thing is, is that the, the patients had an old, an older mean age of 18 months. So I've included that graph in the show notes so you can get a visual of what it's looked like for them. And the authors of this letter concluded that the rise in numbers and the change in the age suggests that there's this expanded cohort of RSV-naive patients that might be driving this resurgence because there's one to two years now of children who have not been exposed to RSV at all. And there are older children who may actually also have waning immunity. There's another study um, that I included in the references that was published by Baker in December 2020 that provides some modeling on the impact of COVID non-pharmaceutical interventions on the future dynamics of epidemic infections like flu and RSV. And their results also suggest that there's this buildup of susceptibility during the control periods when you have the public health measures in place, and this might result in large outbreaks in coming years. They suggest that for RSV, this outbreak might reach its peak in the winter of 2021 22 in North America. So, just to refresh our memories about bronchiolitis, this is a clinical diagnosis that's based on the age of the patient, the time of the year, and the clinical situation. So, typically, it's a baby under the age of one who's had an upper respiratory tract infection, sort of prodrome over a few days, and then develops lower respiratory tract infection symptoms with increased work of breathing, crackles, and wheezes. And the acute symptoms generally last about 10 days, though the cough and the congestion can can continue for a few weeks after. We don't recommend the use of routine chest x-ray for bronchiolitis because it basically just makes you want to prescribe antibiotics We also only do viral testing for cohorting patients who are being admitted. But of course, at this point, we will still be doing COVID testing on these kids with viral symptoms, even though COVID does not appear to be a significant cause of a bronchiolitis-like syndrome in kids. So as you know, the treatment for bronchiolitis is really not fantastic, um, and I don't have any awesome suggestions for you other than to focus on supportive care. And there are published guidelines from the Canadian Pediatric Society and the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. So we give supplemental oxygen if the SATs are less than 90%. We do some gentle suction of the nares to help with secretions, especially if the baby's under four months and they might still be an obligate nose breather. We have to assess hydration because the feeding can often really be affected um, and use you know frequent oral feeding or NG or IV rehydration, depending on whether the baby is dehydrated. The routine use of nebulized treatments like epinephrine, salbutamol, or 3% normal saline are not recommended in any guideline at this point. You know, I think if you're going to try something, you like the baby's in moderate or severe distress, Uh, It's reasonable to do a trial of an epinephrine NEB um, with a good pre- and post-assessment to see if it's made a difference. At the present time, there's really no rule for oral steroids in the treatment of bronchiolitis. So if it's true that we're going to start seeing older kids with bronchiolitis, um, this is where it can get a bit sticky, differentiating this population from young asthmatic patients. So I'll just share with you what my practice would be What I generally do if I see a child 12 months or over with wheezing and respiratory distress, I will do a trial of salbutamol um, with a good pre and post assessment to document if there's any improvement. And you can do this using the PRAM score, um, understanding that the PRAM is officially validated between two and 17 years of age, but we do use it in the one to two year old group as well. If there's an improvement in the respiratory distress with salbutamol, then I would just fire ahead and treat the child for asthma using more salbutamol, adding in ipratropium bromide if it's appropriate, giving oral steroids if they're moderately or severely distressed. But if there's no improvement with that trial of salbutamol, I would just shift gears and accept that they likely have bronchiolitis, and then you just focus on supportive care. So I think it sounds like we're going to need to keep communicating with each other about what we're starting to see in our EDs with respect to wheezing illness in kids. And I think we really need to anticipate that we're going to have a different RSV season in the coming years. It's potentially going to be out of season and it's likely going to be longer and harder than what we've seen before.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade is constantly improving their technology. They've now got this brand new native mobile app, and they've got a robust reporting module that captures all HR metrics and integrates with payroll systems. Don't settle for software that's being farmed by other vendors. Your needs change constantly, and their software should keep pace. Go to metricade.com slash emcases for more details. Welcome to another CGEM
5: and EM cases collaboration. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lindsey Cheskes, PGY4 from the University of Ottawa, to discuss her Just the Facts article, Management of Electrical Storm and Recurrent ICD Shocks in the Emergency Department. Welcome, Lindsey.
6: Thanks, Hansa. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
5: So this is a very scary, if somewhat rare situation. Most of us will maybe see a couple of these throughout our careers. Let's start with the basics. What is the definition of electrical storm?
6: So, electrical storm refers to the occurrence of three or more episodes of sustained ventricular tachycardia, VT, or ventricular fibrillation, VF, over a 24 hour period, where sustained VT refers to VT lasting greater than 30 seconds or requiring termination due to hemodynamic compromise in less than 30 seconds. Now, in patients with an ICD, The definition of electrical storm is widely accepted as three appropriate detections of ventricular arrhythmias that lead to ICD therapies, and that can be either anti-tachycardia pacing or shocks within 24 hours.
5: Now, your article brought in a great twist to electrical storm, and it's really talking about ICD shocks in the context of electrical storm as well. Can you tell me, how do patients with ICDs present differently than you know, a patient without ICD, electrical storm?
6: Patients with an ICD who have electrical storm typically present with multiple ICD therapies or discharges. Symptoms can include pain from the ICD discharges, palpitations, lightheadedness, syncope, or even cardiac arrest. There are a few important things to think about when you're considering the diagnosis of electrical storm, particularly in the ICD patient. The first is That patients with an ICD may present with recurrent ventricular tachycardia that's at a rate that's below the ICD therapy threshold, which is typically set by the cardiologist to treat at 170 to 200 beats per minute for primary prevention ICDs. The second thing to consider, which affects the management of these patients, is whether or not the ICD is delivering appropriate or inappropriate ICD therapies. An appropriate ICD therapy refers to the ICD delivering a therapy for a malignant ventricular arrhythmia, so ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, whereas an inappropriate ICD therapy refers to the ICD delivering a therapy in the absence of a malignant ventricular arrhythmia.
5: And that's a perfect segue. So what we all want to know is how do I treat electrical storm and does it differ if they have an ICD or not?
6: Yeah, so the management of patients in electrical storm depends on the underlying arrhythmia that's driving the storm. For hemodynamically unstable patients with a shockable rhythm that's not adequately being terminated by the ICD, you should perform external electrical cardioversion or defibrillation as per ACLS guidelines just remember to position the pads 8 to 10 centimeters away from the ICD to prevent ICD dysfunction. Now, if they're hemodynamically stable, then you want to assess the underlying rhythm when the ICD is discharging. This is going to dictate your next steps in management. If there's no underlying arrhythmia and you suspect that the ICD therapies are inappropriate, then apply the magnet over the ICD impulse generator. Now, if a slow VT is present, so a VT that is not treated or not terminated by the ICD because it's below the treatment threshold set by the device, the ICD uh, doesn't need to be deactivated and the VT can be treated according to usual guidelines. Now, if a supraventricular tachydysrhythmia is present, such as AFib or SVT then you should apply the magnet and treat the dysrhythmia according to usual guidelines. Now, patients who have recurrent monomorphic ventricular tachycardia that is terminated by the ICD, the goal in management here are to identify and treat reversible triggers and to provide medical therapy to prevent further arrhythmias and to reduce sympathetic tone that's driving the electrical storm. So this includes things like beta blockers, benzodiazepines, and amiodarone is the preferred antiarrhythmic agent.
1: I'm going to make some comments about amiodarone after the end of this segment.
6: If this fails, you can consider intubation and deep sedation, and potentially a stellate ganglion block, polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. They typically have either an underlying long QT. Most commonly due to medications or electrolyte abnormalities, or coronary ischemia as the etiology, which needs to be addressed. In this setting, avoid using amiodarone. This can exacerbate further arrhythmias. Regardless of the underlying arrhythmia driving the electrical storm, all patients in electrical storm who have an ICD should be assessed by the cardiologist for ICD device interrogation and then ongoing management.
1: Some take-home points from that great quick hit. First, for unstable patients with VTAC or VF, treat like you normally would, but be sure to place the pads at least 8 centimeters away from the ICD. In hemodynamically stable patients, you need to figure out if the ICD is triggering appropriately or not. So, for example, in an ICD patient with VTAC that is below the ICD trigger for it to deliver a shock... Usually, that's 170 to 200 beats per minute. That's not a dysfunctioning ICD. That's VTAC like any other VTAC, and treat it accordingly. In the patient who's stable and the ICD is triggering inappropriately, apply the magnet and treat the underlying dysrhythmia like you normally would. Now, one thing that I need to disagree with that was mentioned here is that amiodarone would be your first line medication for a stable, monomorphic VTAC. Based on the ProCameo trial of 2017, I think procainamide is a much better first-line medication than amiodarone. Procainamide also has the advantage of being safe in polymorphic VT, as was mentioned. I mean, let's say you misinterpret the VT as monomorphic and give amio. That's a clean kill. Okay, last but not least, Justin Morgenstern is going to give us some evidence-based tips on how best to manage night shifts and the resulting disruptions in our circadian rhythms that, I can tell you from personal experience, get more and more pronounced with age.
7: Night shifts are a core feature of emergency medicine. Emergencies don't happen on schedule, so as we all know, our doors are open 24 hours a day every single day of the year, and most of us love that but we also recognize the toll that night shifts can have on us. So one area of evidence that we all need to be up to date on is the evidence-based measures that can improve night shifts. There are a number of things that we can do that have been shown to decrease sleep deficits, improve alertness, improve mood, and decrease medical errors. The quality of the evidence is somewhat mixed, so I'm not going to do a deep dive for every topic, But there was a great paper by Jordana Haber and Patrick Wallace in the Emergency Medical Journal that goes over the top 10 evidence-based countermeasures for night shift workers. And I just wanted to share that top 10 list with you. Number one, schedule for circadian rhythm. Being cognizant of how we schedule our shifts is really important. It is far easier to stay up a few extra hours than it is to wake up a few hours earlier. That's why shifts should always move later in the day. You should never work an afternoon shift one day and then come back for a morning the next. Work the morning first and then the afternoon. Other suggestions were reducing total transitions, so work all days this week and then all afternoons next week, and also trying to make the transitions between shifts smaller, say less than six hours. In terms of nights, Working more than two or three night shifts in a row will lead to a problematic sleep deficit. However, just doing a single night can be quite the circadian shock. So the sweet spot is probably two or three back-to-back night shifts. One last note about scheduling. Errors increase when night shifts are longer than eight hours. So try to cap night shifts at eight hours or shorter. And don't try to stay late after your night shift when you're done you're done. Go home. Number two and three, naps matter. Nap before your shift. They suggest the ideal circadian time is between 2 and 4 p.m., but really, just get a nap whenever suits you. Their more difficult point is that napping on shift can really help as well. well. That's probably impossible for most of us, but it might be worth scheduling in such a way that brief naps can work. If you're going to do it, they suggest napping before 3 a.m. Because if you fall asleep after that, you're probably going to want to stay asleep. And you do have to be cautious about sleep inertia. This is why I've never been a big napper myself. It's that feeling of intense grogginess that can last like 30 minutes after you wake up. Keeping naps short, like 15 minutes, can really help with that. Number four, maximize bright light on shift. This one always seems to have me fighting with some of our nurses. There are always people who want the department to be dark on night shifts, but bright light and especially blue light keeps you awake and alert. And we need to be awake and alert in the emergency department. They suggest the departments actually invest in specific high-intensity blue lights for night shifts. Number five, caffeine is amazing. And I'm pretty sure we all know this. They suggest four milligrams per kilogram of caffeine early in your shift, say between twelve thirty and one thirty in the morning. The most important thing about caffeine is don't drink it too late. Avoid it in the last four hours of your shift, or you won't be able to sleep when you get home. And sleep after night shifts is incredibly important for recovery. Number six, avoid large meals. This might also be obvious. I'm always ready for a nap after picking out on a big Thanksgiving meal. And large meals, especially those with a lot of carbs, they can make you sleepy. Smaller snacks, especially those focused on proteins and fats, can help us here. Number seven, minimize light on the way home. Bright lights were really important to keep you awake all night long, but now your shift is over, and it's important to tell your brain that it's time for sleep. If you're walking, they even suggest using welder goggles. But just some really good sunglasses. They're an important investment. Number eight. Consider melatonin. The evidence here isn't great, but there don't seem to be huge harms of melatonin, and there is a Cochrane review that suggests it might actually increase daytime sleep by about 24 minutes, and that's nothing to laugh at considering how hard it can be to sleep during the day. And finally, numbers 9 and 10, if you're going to work night shifts, you need to pay attention and invest in your sleeping environment. Their actual points are, one, it needs to be dark and two, it needs to be cool. I strongly suggest blackout blinds. I actually made an investment in blinds that are custom fit to my windows so that not a single ray of light can get in, and it is amazing. Those sleep masks are another option, but in my mind, far inferior to just a pitch black room. The best temperature to sleep often brings out some stronger opinions, but there is evidence that you get better sleep in a cooler room. They do leave out one thing that I think is pretty important, noise. In my new house, I will actually have soundproofing in the walls, and that might seem excessive, but you're going to be doing night shifts for a very long time, so investing in yourself makes sense. But without going over the top, a simple white noise machine can make all the difference. So there you go. 10 tips for healthier night shifts. Evidence-based medicine designed for you to make you healthier. And even though we like to think that we're superheroes, that we can do anything, this is also for our patients. Because if we're better rested, if we're more alert, we're going to be able to provide much better care for our patients.
1: Well, that almost wraps it up for this EM case's quick hits. Let's do a little review here. First, vasopressor failure. So when we talked about the importance of treating the perhaps not so obvious underlying cause when your vasopressor isn't working. Think about this list of underlying causes and use POCUS to help you figure it out. First, acidosis. Second, hypothyroidism. Third, anaphylaxis. Fourth, adrenal insufficiency. Fifth, hypocalcemia. Sixth, occult bleeding like GI and retroperitoneal. Seventh, poisoning like TCAs, beta blockers, etc. And don't forget that it's certainly possible that the patient has multiple causes of shock. Okay, in the next EM quick hit, Britt Long and Michael Gottlieb reminded us that we should be hypervigilant with asplenic patients, always ask about it, and treat accordingly. A great review of bronchiolitis with Sarah Reed was a really interesting platform for discussing how other infectious diseases may hit us with a vengeance after COVID restrictions let up. Electrical storm in the ICD patient can be challenging. Just remember to shock at least eight centimeters away from the ICD and to figure out if the ICD is triggering appropriately. If not, use a magnet. Now for a deeper dive into beta blockers and refractory VF, Melanie Bamel covered it nicely in our Best Cases Ever, number 73. That's Best Case Ever, number 73. And Justin has a great post called Management of Electrical Storm on First 10 E.M finally, your sleep matters. Be kind to your circadian rhythm and try out some of the evidence-based tips that Justin reviewed. One thing I find helpful is silicone earplugs to keep out the noise while sleeping. Probably better than a noise machine, in my opinion, at least. All right, don't forget to check out our new website for the EM Cases Summit November 11th to 13th. The website is EMcasesummit.com. The speaker lineup is second to none. Tickets go on sale August 19th at 10 a.m. EST. Put it in your calendar.